also at a good place for me. I carried the two. Oh yeah, I knew. <laughs> All right, well, Romans chapter 2 is our text for this morning, uh, verses 6 to the end of the chapter, which is verse 29. Romans chapter 2, 6 all the way through verse 29 is our text. And as always, before we go to the Word, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you again for the time that we have together this morning. We thank you for this Word. We thank you for the clarity of your Word. We also thank you as much as it might uh, prick us and and. Uh, search us for the conviction that your word brings and the power of your spirit. And so we pray that you would do this for us today, that you would open our hearts to receive this word as you intend for us to receive it, that it would convict us. And through that conviction that the spirit would use its power to mold us and shape us and conform us into the image of Christ. We pray this blessing over the preaching of your word in Jesus name. Amen. Now, last week we looked in Romans chapter 2 at verses 1 to 5, and we talked mainly about hypocrisy. Uh, Hypocrisy as it relates to sort of the religious uh, moralist, uh, as opposed to the the irreligious pagan of the end of chapter 1. Chapter 2 deals with the religious moralist, and it focuses uh, primarily from the standpoint of talking to the, the Jewish person who would have, as we said last week, been... Amening the words of Paul all the way up through the end of Romans one, we you know the Jew would have loved it that Paul uh, was getting on to, if you will, the unrighteous, evil, wicked, horrible, God hating, no good pagans of the world who would act in such a way as Paul outlines at the end of Romans chapter one, and so you have the religious moralist, you have the kind of person who, in their own assessment of themselves think, well, I'm basically good. I'm basically moral. I basically sort of have it all together. And as we kind of said last week, let's just be honest, most people, whether they're Christians, believers or not, most people that we come into contact with are going to be like that. They're just going to be your normal, average, everyday person who just kind of goes through life. And as I even heard someone say earlier this week, what do I try to do? I try to go through life and just Treat others well and, you know, treat others, I mean, the golden rule, treat others as you would like to be treated and so forth and so on. And that's really sort of the key to a good and happy and prosperous life is just to treat other people well. So what do you do with this kind of person, with the kind of person that's not just obviously and overtly like the kind of person in Romans chapter 1? Well, that's the kind of person that Paul is dealing with in Romans chapter uh, 2. And we started to look at that last week. Now this week, we're going to take the remainder of Romans chapter 2 because it's kind of hard to break it up. I mean, we could if we wanted to, but Paul here in Romans 2 makes such a vital and interconnected argument that I really found it hard to maintain the flow of that argument by trying to break this thing up. And so we are going to take it all in one chunk, and rather than getting into a a word-for-word sort of specifics here and there sort of exposition. We're going to take a look at an exposition of Paul's entire argument that he makes to the religious religious moralist that he does in Romans chapter 2. And what he begins to do here in verse 6 is to outline and help us to understand some very real things about the judgment of God. God's judgment upon sinners, especially as it relates and even as it relates to the religious 
moral kind of person that we're talking about. Now, he began to talk about the judgment of God when he talked about the hypocrite in the first verses. And he's asking the hypocrite, do you really think just because you're the kind of person who judges others for acting in such a way, for acting in the way of the end of Romans chapter 1, you really think that because you, are, you have put yourself on the pedestal of judge that you yourself will escape the judgment of God? And of course, the answer to the rhetorical question is, of course not. Of course, the moralist will not escape the judgment of God any more than the wicked, evil person at the end of chapter 1 will escape the judgment of God. And Paul now tells us why, beginning in verse 6. Why is it that even the moralist cannot escape the judgment of God upon unrighteousness and ungodliness? Why is it? And the first part of the argument is that God's judgment is based on works. God's judgment is based on works. We get this directly from what he says in verse 6. He says, He will render to each one according to his works. You say each one of what? Each person. Each man. He will render to each one of us. Each one of his creatures. Each one of his uh, man creatures that he has created. He will render to each one of them according to his, each one of their works. So you think about the judgment of God and standing before the judgment seat of God, all of your works will be put out on a list. They will be put on display and he will make his judgment upon us based upon those works. Of course, like I said, this is not disconnected from what we saw last week in the first few verses. God now is, or Paul is turning his attention to these religious, moral, upright, good standing people. And he tells them that they would, that their, their works will render to them the judgment of God. Now, what does Paul say now to the religious moralist? How does he Explain what he is trying to get across to them. Well, he has two parallel and contrasting statements for what he means that God will render to each according to his own works. And statement number one is in verse seven. So how does God render according to works? In verse seven, we see that to those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory, honor, and immortality, he will give eternal life. The word for patience here is a word that is often also translated as endurance. In fact, it's translated as endurance in the ESV in Romans 5. When Paul says, not only that, we rejoice in our sufferings because suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope. It's translated as patience again in Romans 8 when Paul says, if we hope for what we don't see, we wait for it with patience. So Paul's statement here in verse 7, it's not a weak statement to say that they, with patience, in well-doing, seek glory, honor, and immortality. 
It is a very strong statement. And he's saying that those who with constant endurance and unwavering steadfastness in well-doing. That's the kind of person, Paul says, will receive eternal life. The kind of person with constant endurance and unwavering steadfastness in their well-doing. We must note that here. Paul is admitting, this is the argument, okay? So follow what he's saying and follow what I mean. Paul is admitting and telling us that there is the theoretical possibility of gaining eternal life by works. That is a possibility. Why is it a possibility? Because the promise of the law is that if we obey it, we will be blessed. That's the promise of the law. If you obey, you'll be blessed. And the curse of the law is that if you disobey, you'll be cursed. So Paul's admitting, rightly, that you can gain eternal life by works of the law. Theoretically, it is possible to do such a thing. And by the way, he calls it here eternal life. He will give to them eternal life. Why would he give eternal life? Because that's the reward for good works. So salvation isn't mentioned at all. Because if you were the kind of person who endured in well-doing and endured in your works of the law, you wouldn't need salvation. You would just get eternal life, right? That's the blessing. That would be your right reward. That would be your wages. That would be what you had earned. And so Paul says, yeah, to those who, by patience and well-doing, seek glory, honor, and immortality, yeah, He'll give them eternal life. That's statement number one. Statement number two is the other kind of judgment. So that's the first judgment, the judgment of, yes, you've done it, therefore you get eternal life. But, so here's the contrasting but parallel statement, but, verse eight, for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. Okay, so now the contrast In verse 8, to seeking eternal glory, honor, and immortality. In verse 7, the contrast is the self-seeking nature of unrighteousness. The seeking in verse 7 was a seeking of eternal glory and eternal honor and eternal immortality. That's what immortality is. It's eternal life. Verse 8, the contrast is the self-seeking nature of unrighteousness. And Paul says those kind of people... The verse 8 kind of people, the self-seeking disobeyers of of righteousness, disobeyers of righteousness, those kind of people will only incur wrath and fury. So the first kind of person in verse 7 receives eternal life. The second potential kind of person in in verse 8 receives wrath and fury. By the way, he uses those two words there, wrath and fury. Wrath is the disposition of anger and fury is the emotion behind the anger which I think we maybe forget sometimes when God pours out his wrath it is not a a stoic unfeeling 
neutral, passive, calm, pouring out of wrath upon the sinner. When God pours out his wrath, it is a pouring out that comes from a passionate display of righteous indignation and fury against the sinner. Not uncontrollable rage, mind you. He's not out of control, but it is passionate. It is furious. It is indignation and it is condemnation. Terrible reality of the indignation of God against the sinner. So again, just like the use of patience in verse 7 makes it a very strong statement of the necessity for continued steadfastness and unwavering endurance. Here, the use of both wrath and fury make this statement a strong statement on what awaits those who obey unrighteousness rather than obey righteousness. So what's the argument now that Paul is making in these verses? Remember, we are talking not to the irreligious pagan of the end of chapter 1. We're talking to the religious moralist, i.e. the the Jew in chapter 2. As I said, the hypocrite who would have amened Paul all the way through chapter 1. And now he says in verse 7, Paul says, If you endure in well-doing and seek glory, honor, and immortality, you'll get life. And if you don't, in verse 8, you'll get wrath. And the target of his words here, the, the Jew, the religious pietist, would inevitably say to Paul, well, I'm a verse 7 kind of guy. That's the hypocrite of verses 1 to 5. That's the person he's talking to. They're the kind of person who would say, I'm a verse 7 kind of guy. Of course I'm a verse 7 kind of guy. I'm nice to people. Good grief. And all those people, of course, that you talked about at the end of chapter 1, Well, they're verse 8 kind of people. Or maybe you're like the Pharisee in the temple in the parable and you just kind of look at everybody else's verse 8 kind of people. You're the only verse 7 kind of person you know. I mean, that's usually how religious pride comes out and moral pride comes out in us anyway. I'm I'm the only verse 7 kind of person I know. All these verse 8 people, they need some mercy and they need some prayers. But I'm verse verse 7 people. And so Paul says what he says next. Now here's where he really plays the trump card, if you will. He says in verse 9, There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil. And the Jew still says, Amen. That's right. Tribulation, distress for everyone who does evil. Get them. Get them, God. And then Paul says to the Jew first and also to the Greek. But glory and honor for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek, for God shows no partiality. So now Paul has opened up this possibility that would have grated against the Jewish mind and it grates against any religious moralist's mind. And in fact, it's two possibilities, definitely two possibilities that would have grated against the Jewish mind. What's the first possibility in verse 9? The first possibility that would grate against the Jewish mind in verse 9 is that not only will the Greek who does evil receive tribulation and distress, but also the Jew who does evil 
will receive tribulation and distress. And not only does he say that, he says to the Jew first and also to the Greek. See, when he introduced the gospel in chapter 1, verse 16, what did he say? To the Jew first and also to the Greek. And it's like, okay, salvation to the Jew first and also to the Greek. But guess what? Damnation also to the Jew first and also to the Greek for everyone who does evil. That's not how this is supposed to turn out. The Jew would say, we're the children of Abraham. In fact, in John 8, that's their argument to Jesus. Don't you know we have Abraham as our father? And Jesus tells them what? You're of your father, the devil. In fact, one of John the Baptist's own statement to them was a shot at this boasting in their fleshly lineage. And he says, don't you presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children from Abraham if he wants to. Your physical lineage avails you nothing. Being the children of Abraham physically. So this Jewish religious pietist at this point had his world rocked. Wait a minute. You mean to tell me that even we can fall into the category of verse 7? And even we can fall into the category of condemnation? And not only do you up that ante, but you have the nerve to say it would go to us first and then to the Greek second? And Paul says, yeah, that's a possibility. But there's another possibility that would have made them say, wait a minute, Paul, now you've, now you've really overcooking our grits. The second possibility is in verse 10. Because in verse 10, Paul says, not only will the Jew have potential access to eternal life, but so also do the Greek. Does the Greek. There's glory, honor, peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek. It's not just for the Jew. This promise of life. God's plan is a global plan. And it has to do with more than the Jew, which is why he concludes, because God shows no partiality. Your Jewishness, he says, will not save you. That's essentially what he's telling them. Your Jewishness on its own as a basic fact of biological reality will not save you, cannot save you, and does not save you. Because, to loop us back around to what this point is, God's judgment is based on works. Jew or Greek, his judgment of you will be based on works. He is leveling the playing field, if you will, between Jew and Greek before the judgment of God. And before that judgment, your lineage, your ancestry will avail you nothing. It doesn't matter if you come from Abraham or not. He will judge you based on your works. And if you obeyed unrighteousness, wrath and fury... And if you were patient in well-doing, eternal life. That's the judgment. Obedience will lead to blessing. Disobedience will lead to cursing. That's his argument. And his argument, as we've said, is right.
Now, what's the second thing that he has to say to them? It's the second thing that he now says to them to, to help them understand what he's talking about. How is it that God's judgment is based on works? Well, that's the second part of his argument. In the second part of his argument, how is it, the answer to the question, how is it that God's judgment is based on works, is because, point number two, God's judgment is grounded in the law. God's judgment of us is grounded in the law. So how does God determine righteousness or unrighteousness? Well, righteousness is a reflection of his own character. And he has, for lack of a better word, codified righteousness, or he has communicated righteousness to his creature, to us, to the world, in the law of Moses, in the Mosaic law. He has communicated to us what righteousness is. And we know what righteousness is from the law of Moses. And so, for this judgment of God, it is not based on some kind of unknown or abstract or arbitrary thing out there, some fountain of knowledge that we have no access to. It is based on and grounded in the law of God. That's what Paul introduces in these next verses. And he does it first by talking about, funny enough, the Gentile. He says first in verse 12, All who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. Now what does verse 12 mean? He's talking about in the first part Gentile, and in the second part Jew. The Gentile is the one who sins without the law. So the argument could be, because now he's introduced the concept of condemnation for Jew and Gentile based on works, and the argument in favor of the Gentile could be, but the Gentile didn't receive the law, Paul. They don't have the law. They don't know the law. They didn't receive the law especially like the Jew did. So maybe they are with excuse. Maybe they have an excuse. Maybe they have a a case to plead. I didn't know any of this stuff. And Paul's first statement is, you sin without the law, you'll perish without the law. Sin is sin, and it brings forth death, whether you have the law or not. And he's going to explain why in a moment. And then, of course, the Jew, all who have sinned under the law, that's the Jew, they'll be judged by the law. He goes on to say in verse 13, because it's not hearers of the law who are righteous, but doers of the law who will be justified. And Paul's point there is not, of course, to begin preaching salvation by works. Paul's point there is to continue to explain verse 12. That it's not about whether or not you've heard the law. The the Gentiles haven't heard the law and the Jew have. But it's not about whether you've heard the law. It's about whether you've done the law. That's what the judgment's based on. The Jewish people, of course, received it. The Gentile did not. But the judgment is based on whether you have done the law. So now he's going to explain it further. Let's talk about the Gentile first. He says in verse 14, Look, when Jews who don't have the law, I mean when Gentiles who don't have the law, 
by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they don't have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts while their conscience bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on the day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. So Gentiles are going to be judged and they're going to be judged on the basis of works. And the judgment of works is going to be grounded in the law. And you say, well, they don't have the law. And Paul says it doesn't matter that they don't have the law because even the Gentiles by nature or naturally tend to do what it is that the law requires. And when they do that, they become a law to themselves because they prove that God has written the law in the human heart. What does that mean? It means that even Gentiles have a sense of basic morality. Everyone has a sense of basic morality. You tell people, even people who don't know the law of God, you tell them it's wrong to murder somebody. Most people are going to say, yeah, murder is evil. And to the unbeliever, to the Gentile, to the atheist, whoever you ask, well, how do you come to the conclusion that it's evil? without an objective moral standard. But everybody kind of has this sense of morality. And it's because, according to this text, there's a sense in which God has written the law in the human heart. So that when anyone even if it's unknowingly and unintentionally, when anyone does what the law requires, they become a law to themselves. Though they don't have the law in the sense of the revelation of the law like we have in the book of Exodus, for example. They haven't read it. They don't know it. They don't consider it. When they do what the law requires, they become a law to themselves. And it's written on their hearts enough that sometimes those basic moral principles break through the fog of sin. But what this ultimately does is show that no Gentile will be spared from God's wrath in the day of judgment. Even though his judgment is grounded in a law they don't have, they will not escape his judgment according to the law. So the Gentile stands condemned. And none of them have an excuse before God. That's his argument for Gentile condemnation. See that picture? Then he addresses the Jew. Of course, then you say, okay, well, what about the Jew? What about them? They have the law. So what does it mean that those who perish uh, with the law or those who sin under the law will be judged by the law? So what does that mean? Well, that starts in verse 17. He says, if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God, know his will, approve what is excellent because you're instructed from the law and you're sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? Will you preach against stealing? Do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? Now we're back to the hypocrisy of the religious pietists. They preach against and judge others for things that they do themselves. 
They preach against things that they themselves do. And they judge others for sins and unrighteousness that they themselves engage in. And again, like we said last week, this is not saying that we as Christians, as God's people, can't speak up and speak out against sin and label sin for what it is. It's saying don't be a hypocrite when you do it. Which the religious moralist is that Paul is talking about. And by the way, the play on words here is funny. He says, you who teach others, do you not teach yourself in verse 21? So you go back to verses 19 and 20. It says, you claim to be a guide to the blind, but you yourself are blind. This is essentially what he's saying. You claim to be a guide to the blind, but you're blind. A light to those in darkness, but you're in darkness. An instructor of the foolish, but you are foolish. A teacher of the children, but you are a child yourself. And the problem then is encapsulated in verse 23 when he says, You who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law. As it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. So we come to Paul's ultimate point. Now he has condemned the Gentile. And he's also condemned the Jew. He's condemned those who don't have the law and he's condemned those who do have the law. And Paul's ultimate point is, yes, the law promises life and the law promises life through obedience. So verse 7 and 8, going back to that, they make sense. You'll get eternal life through patience and well-doing and you'll get wrath and fury for those who are self-seeking and don't obey the truth, but instead obey unrighteousness. Now it makes sense. Verse 13 makes sense. It's not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. But now, Paul has established... So get this. You, you come to... That's why I didn't want to break it up into pieces, because you break it up into pieces and you'll walk away thinking, well, okay, so we can earn our salvation. Because Paul is making the point that you can receive life from adhering to the law in the first part. But by the time you get to the end of his discussion with the Jew and Gentile, he's essentially established the reality that God's judgment based on works is not good news. It's not good news that God will judge us according to our works. It's bad news because according to works, Jew and Gentile are condemned. That's his point. So it's not his point that we can have eternal life. It's not his ultimate point that we can have eternal life by obeying the law. His ultimate point is, yes, that's the promise of the law. And the bad news is, ain't one of you going to do it. That's his ultimate point. Both Jew and Gentile have broken the law. The Gentile does it even in his ignorance of the law, his mental ignorance of the law, the Gentile breaks the law. And the Jew breaks the law, ironically, by boasting in it. Even as they boast in it. So that by the time Paul is done here through verse 24, everyone falls in the verse 9 category. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. 
So what he's done is he kind of established the fact that the Gentile essentially, just to break it into the the breaks of the chapters, the Gentile of chapter 1 is condemned. And the Jew says, Amen. And then by the time he gets done with chapter 2, it's, no, you're condemned too. You're all in verse 9. There's nobody in verse 10. Everybody's in verse 9. Nobody's a verse 7 kind of guy. Everybody's a verse 8 kind of guy. And therefore, everybody's a verse 9 kind of guy. You're all condemned. And tribulation and distress are coming upon you. God's judgment is based on works. It is grounded in the law. And there's one final area now that Paul wants to ensure that the religious pietist gets what he's getting at and realizes the judgment that he stands under. And this is the last point of God's judgment is that it is impartial to ritual. It's impartial to ritual. We've already seen it's impartial to nationality, if you will. But now it's impartial to ritual as well. He goes on to say, verse 25, because for circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So anything short of perfect obedience nullifies the point of the sign of circumcision. That's Paul's argument. It's an outward circumcision is an outward expression of religious ritual. And it indeed did confer and does confer a blessing. He says it's indeed a value. But how is it a value or when is it a value? Circumcision and the blessing of circumcision is valuable because the blessing of circumcision is also connected to obeying the whole of the law. God's judgment comes based on man's works, his deeds not merely on outward expressions of religion. Outward expressions of religion cannot cover over a life of disobedience. You you can't put lipstick on the religious pig, right? You can't do it. You can't pretty yourself up through outward expressions of religious ritual. And then he presses the point even further. He says, look, if a man, so if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the, think about this from a Jewish mind hearing this. If a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his circumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision, but you break the law. This is an extremely powerful rhetorical point because essentially what he is saying is here's how worthless circumcision is for the blessing if you break the law. If you had a Gentile who kept the law, his uncircumcision would be counted as circumcision. And that Gentile would judge you who have circumcision in the process. That's the rhetorical argument that he's making. I mean, you can see how this is going to bristle the hairs on the back of the neck of the religious Jew of the day. Here's how worthless it is, religious pietist. Even the Gentile who kept the law would be counted as circumcised. 
and you who are circumcised physically would be cut off spiritually because you break the law. The Jew had come to see the sign of circumcision as a sign of God's automatic blessing of them simply because they were the children of Abraham. It was all connected back to Abraham, right? That's who received the sign of circumcision. But God judges according to the law on the basis of works. And that judgment will be based on the whole law. So, no one is a Jew, verse 28, who is merely one outwardly. Nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly. And circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. Okay, let me get this out real quick. Paul is not using circumcision in these verses in the same way that he uses circumcision in Colossians chapter 2. In Colossians chapter 2, that's where he says, in him, this is Colossians 2.11, so this is a little parenthesis, so follow me. Colossians chapter 2.11, Paul says, In him you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. In that passage, Paul uses circumcision as a type that points to the spiritual reality of rebirth and the new life that we have in Christ. We've been cut off from the old life circumcised from it and have been raised to new life in Christ. And he uses circumcision as a type or a shadow of that. But that's not how Paul is using circumcision in Romans 2. He is talking about actual physical circumcision connected to obedience to the law. His focus is the law. And to demonstrate to the Jew that they are condemned just as much as the Gentile if they are depending on works for eternal life. And he says here, you're not a Jew if you're simply one outwardly and circumcision is outward and physical. You're a Jew if you're one inwardly and circumcision is the matter of the heart. In other words, a true Jew is not only one who has observed the sign of circumcision, but a true Jew is one who observes the law that the sign of circumcision represents. And so it's not merely outward and physical, it has also affected the heart, and therefore has affected the deeds, and therefore has led to an obedience to the law that merits eternal life. That's the true Jew. Listen to this quote from, a, from one of my commentaries. It says, quote, The meaning then here is that if the Jew will satisfy himself with bringing before the judgment of the law what is only external and merely, merely ceremonial observance without his possessing that perfect righteousness which this observance denotes and which the judge will demand, it will serve for no purpose but his condemnation. In other words, what Paul is arguing here is that if you think you can stand before the judgment seat of God and hold out your circumcision as proof of your Jewishness, but you don't have the perfect righteousness connected to it, it's only going to condemn you because only perfect righteousness earns eternal life. That's his point. 
And he's trying to break through the fog of religious piety to get them to understand that just as much as you understand that the Gentile is condemned because of their wickedness, you are condemned because of your moralistic pietism. Because you do the same things. It might look different because it's a matter of the heart as well as the hands. That's Jesus' point, right? You know, if you've been angry with your brother, you've committed murder in your heart. If you've lusted after a woman, you've committed adultery in your heart. Simple Jewishness will account for nothing. And likewise, none of the Jewish ceremonies in and of themselves will avail anything before the Lord. They cannot hold up, or they can hold up all the ritual they want. It will not avail themselves at the judgment according to works. God will still remain impartial when He meets out His condemnation. And it will be based on, were you perfectly righteous or not? Now, how shall we tie all this together? Okay, so let's tie it all together. Romans 1 is the Gentile judgment. Romans 2 is the Jewish judgment. Now, Paul gets to his conclusion of this entire argument in Romans chapter 3. Specifically in verse 9 when he says, What then are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jew and Greek, are under sin, as it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. That's his argument in Romans 1 and 2. And he's concluding it in Romans 3. We are charging... Both Jew and Greek are under sin. None is righteous. How then shall we be saved? And his answer to that conundrum that he's created in Romans 1, 2 and into chapter 3, he begins to answer in verse 21 of Romans 3. Now... The righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. So the entire point of Romans 2, 1, 2, and 3 is the righteousness of God manifested in the law as required from us. You remember I said that in Romans 1, 16, and 17. And the entire point of Romans 1, 2, and into chapter 3 is that in the law, the righteousness of God is revealed as required from us. And therefore, we stand condemned because we don't have it. We can't do it. But now, verse 21 of chapter 3, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, though the law and prophets bear witness to it. And here's the answer. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. You get to the end of... Romans 3, verse 20, and you say, as Paul does in verse 20, by works of the law, no one will be justified in his sight. Then how can we be justified? And his immediate answer in verse 21 and 22, the righteousness of God now not worked through the law, but the righteousness of God through faith. That's how you're justified. That's the good news of the gospel. To the Jew first and also to the Greek.
So we'll get there. But I don't want to leave you in Romans 2. You're all going to go home and be really depressed. <laughs> but that's the answer to the problem in Romans 1 and 2. Romans 3, 21 and 22. Let's pray. So Father, we thank You that even as convicting as Your Word can be, how wonderful and glorious it is that we come to the stark reality of the Gospel, that everything demanded and required of us in the law, You have supplied to us in the Gospel. How wonderful is the good news of Christ, that we are saved not by works, We're saved not by trying to attain a righteousness that we can't ourselves attain to endure in a way that we can never endure. But that Christ and Christ alone has endured on our behalf. Christ and Christ alone has obeyed on our behalf. Christ and Christ alone has supplied righteousness on our behalf and we simply receive it through faith. How wonderful this good news is. May it be new and real and fresh for us. In Jesus' name, amen.